Shanae a Kreusel. Hello and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast's Review of the Year. To help us look back over the last year's episodes, we've invited back some previous guests. As well as our regular interviewer, Jan Gray, we asked Mike Knight, who, with his brother Dave, was awarded a British Empire Medal in the 2021 New Year's Honours List for services to cricket. Also with us is Professor Richard Thomas of Swansea University, who published his book all about the history of the game this year. And finally, Chris Peregrine, South Wales journalist and long-standing cricketer in South Wales, especially with his club Bronwyth, who were a subject of one of our podcasts this year. We met, as has been the norm since the beginning of the podcast, on a Zoom call to chat about some of our favourite podcast clips of 2021. It's a real welcome to all our guests uh, today for the podcast review of the year. Um, we're going to go through our, our guests one at a time uh, and then ask them to, to give us their uh, cricketing highlight, personal cricketing highlight of 2021. So first we have Mike Knight, member of Newport Cricket Club, player, administrator, historian. I'm not sure there's anything that you haven't done for Newport, uh, Mike, is that right? Yeah, so my highlights were obviously the BEM. That was, you know, the highlight of the year. I'm going to mention two. One was the ground highlight. Uh, I'm not sure whether you know, but we hosted all of the Glamorgan second 11 matches. Two highlights on in that programme. One was Mar- Marnes Labergene. You've all heard of him. Uh, he played a second 11 match. Totally by accident, I suppose, or by desire. He was in a car with one of the other players who were tested positive. Manus was okay, but he had to isolate. Uh, his last day of isolation was the first day of a, of a first team match. So he couldn't play in that. So he asked them to play in the second 11 match, which was starting at Newport the following day, four day match. And he batted in the first innings and scored. 275. So that was a fantastic innings, uh, a ground record. Great to see such a good player. He loves playing at Newport. He scores 100 every time he comes there. Were you there uh, to watch it, Mike? Yeah, we were there to watch it. Chanceless, right the way through. Uh, we all thought he was going to get 300, but he got he got, got out right at the end, 275. And then in the following match, uh, Marcus Harris played a second 11 match for Leicestershire. And he scored 141. So we had the two Australian batters, numbers two and three, in the Ashes Cast match at the moment, both playing Newport this season, scoring centuries. So that was a really That's nice That's incredible family. when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you know, a small world. Uh, and the other one would be the season that Newport had. We had a great season, third in the league, Welsh Cup finalists, and we won three T20 competitions. So it was a good year for, for us for 2022. Brilliant. OK, well, let's move on to our next guest, Richard Thomas, Dr. Richard Thomas. Uh, I hope I'm going to get the details right here. Associate Professor in Media at Swansea University. Have I got that right? Spot on, Stephen. Spot OK, on. Um, uh, for, for us, uh, you, you did a podcast uh, all about your book, Cricketing Lives, a characterful history from pitch to page. Uh, and one little thing that I discovered from Phil Steele a couple of weeks ago, notorious or famous for running out Matthew Maynard in a charity game uh, some years ago, I think. 1993, yeah. We, when we did that, we, we were under the impression that we were a combination of uh, sort of John T. Rhodes and Derek Randall. Uh, and we didn't realise that it was being filmed. And when we watched the film back, it was more a case of um, Corporal Jones and Private Godfrey, to be honest. But um, yeah, that, that was a bit of a career highlight. At least I can tell my grandchildren that I run, once ran out Matthew Maynard. But he was on about his fifth run at the time. <laughs> OK. Um, OK, so your, your cricketing highlight of the year, Richard. Um, well, obviously, yeah, very, very, you very kindly invited me on to talk about my book. So obviously that was a highlight when that was... Um, published in May. And I remember in the chat that you and I have, I was sort of talking a lot about my dad, who was a sort of inspiration for the book and who I sort of paid tribute to at the end. And I just managed, as I think I told you, to get him the kind of first draft before he he sadly died. 
And obviously that whole process of getting the book and chatting to you, it sort of sent me back being quite nostalgic, thinking about my, my dad and his own cricket career. And I think I told you that he played for Wales against or Wales school, uh, secondary schools against England in 1951 in Old Trafford. And I, I very, very proud to have his cap. So I was sort of Googling around that game and just sort of seeing if I could pick up any information about it. And I found the programme for that match, which was available for five quid, which I bought. It's in pristine condition, so I'm very pleased to have the programme. And just flicking through it, as well as my dad playing for Wales, there's some familiar names. The other familiar name that you will all have heard of in the Welsh team was David Parry-Jones was playing in that match. Um, also, unusually, an England test player from Lancashire, Bob Barber, was playing for Welsh secondary schools. Beating And then playing for um, England was another test cricketer who was Ken Taylor, played for Yorkshire. So I was just delighted to have that to go with his cap, just to kind of commemorate that event, which is 70 years ago this year. Amazing. Okay, our, our next guest is uh, Chris Peregrine, commercial writer with the uh, South Wales Evening Post, uh, long-standing member of Club Cricket Bronwith, uh, who we visited uh, this year and interviewed some of the gentlemen from the club. I did find something about you, Chris, uh, on, on a little <laughs> website somewhere. It says, likes fresh air, fresh glass, much music and excess of sport. And then it says, no salad. I hope that's the beginning and the end of your controversial uh, opinions tonight, but um, you're very welcome to, to, to be here, Chris. Tell us your personal cricketing highlight of the year. Well, avoiding salad is always a highlight, um, cricket tees, but um, on a personal level, I, I sneaked onto the field of play just the once this year in September <clears throat> on actually a famous ground. But my, I played for a, a touring side called the Bohemians and... Um, we linked up for the last 10 years with the Fossils of Worcestershire, who are a great bunch of, of guys who draw from other clubs. They're, they're kind of veterans, um, and that's been kind. This year we played in the Cinderella ground in Worcester, which has a remarkable history. WG Grace played on it, and the first Australian touring side in the 18-something or others. I, th um, I think it was in the 1860s, I think. I might be, might be wrong on that, but... I'll go with that one. Um, and they played at the ground as well. And the Cinderella ground uh, later became Worcester's ground before New Road came about. Because that's a personal thing. I managed to, to sneak on and play a match there. But perhaps my overall favourite was Glamorgan's Royal London win because I don't think they got the credit they deserved outside of Wales because it was a, almost downgraded by the ECB. It was a, a final on a Thursday in Trent Bridge rather than a Saturday at Lord's. Um, they qualified um, on the Monday night for the game on the Thursday, and it was a. Um, I didn't. I couldn't go. I was working. I taped it on Sky and and watched it as live during the evening. But it was a sensational match uh, performance by a young young side. Not a Welshman in the team. They did us proud that day. Final participant tonight is Jan Gray, who, who if you've listened to some of the podcast episodes, you know has done a fair bit of uh, interviewing for us over the year. Jan, it's not true that the only reason we've invited you on uh, to lower the average age of the participants. Um, you're 22 years old. Have I got that right? Yes. Okay. Bowler, legspin bowler from Kent, currently studying uh, for an MA at uh, Cardiff University. Um, I found on the Kent website uh, your best bowling performance, six for five, which sounds like the kind of thing that leg spinners do from time to time. Um, and a couple of quotes. Uh, from you, where's the fun without the risk? And um, most likely to be teased for a posh accent. So we promise we won't tease you at all, but do tell us your cricketing highlight of 2021. Well, I would like a disclaimer that I think I was 15 when that stuff was done. So that's, um, yeah, I, I don't want that on the record anymore, to be honest. And I also <laughs> have to take extreme exception at Chris's uh, lack of, or attitude towards salad, because as a vegan, that's very offensive to me. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, you shouldn't have started it. Yeah, I know, oh. really controversial. Yeah, I guess uh, I haven't got a specific moment this year, I think. I think more 
what it is, is we talk a lot on the podcast about how cricket's a community and that sense of like belonging and feeling together with a team. And I think that just the return of that sort of uh, club cricket atmosphere this summer, especially in the latter part of the summer when people were allowed to mingle much more, is that was definitely the moment or you know the moment in the season that really made it feel like cricket was back for me. And that was yeah a, a really great moment. Well, we're going to run through some of the clips from, from uh, some of the episodes we got. The clip that we're going to hear first is uh, from our episode uh, of March the 11th, entitled From Soweto to Anasagaron. And you're going to hear three different people. The first is Peter Hain, uh, who perhaps needs uh, no introduction, Labour peer uh, and long-standing uh, kind of campaigner against apartheid in South Africa. Um, Hugh Jenkins, a uh, member of Anasagaron Cricket Club. And finally, Gordon Templeton, who was a member of the touring uh, Soweto side that was the first black club side to uh, to come to the UK. So it was an amazing occasion. Ernest Geron batted first and ran up a big score. 444 runs were, were shared um, the, on the afternoon. The match was actually drawn on the last ball uh, and the teams tied on 222 each. Uh, and I said in the post-match reception in the clubhouse, which was a fantastic reception, I said there I was wondering who I wanted to win when Nelson Mandela swooped in and made it a draw. And everybody laughed because it, there was a sense of magic about it. And we had Donkloyne Male Voice Choir singing uh, their songs. And then the Soweto players performed as well. And they, they sang their own songs in their African language. It was a, a very moving occasion. There was just one, one twist to it right at the end of the reception. Uh, the captain of the, the opening batsman um, who'd plundered runs off the Soweto, I think he was in the Segarian's quick top scorer, Steve Williams, was also a police officer and he'd gone on duty after the match. Uh, and he turned up in his police car uh, with the lights flashing and the Soweto boys were absolutely terrified because, of course, under apartheid all their lives, they'd been intimidated and harassed by the police. And so they'd never really met a nice police officer before, <laughs> unlike the ferocious ones they, they normally encountered. And here was Steve Williams uh, uh, greeting them as one of their fellow cricketers. I, I don't know how we go around to it. I asked him if he'd be interested in becoming a patron of, the, of Anseguero, and obviously uh, he did. He was living quite local to us. And he was really good to the club. I'm pretty sure it was 94. He approached me to say, partly involved in getting Soweto Cricket Club who were to tour. And this was after, obviously, the demise of apartheid in South Africa and Mandela come to power and so forth. So he, he approached me and said, would we be interested in being on their tour itinerary? So again, took it back to the committee. Obviously, too good an opportunity to turn down. I had no idea what it was going to involve. But it, of course, it, it became quite a, a big news story, uh, certainly in Wales. I ended up doing interviews on both Radio Wales and Radio Cymru in Welsh, which a bit of a challenge for me as not, not a fluent Welsh speaker, but I was able to, uh, to, do, to do that interview. Pretty much functioned out. probably the only game they played in Wales here, was it? I think it was, yeah. I it was, yeah, yeah, I think it was the only game they played in Wales. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite a tour for these guys. Uh, I think we were quite early in the tour. We had this pre, uh, pretty much sort of function, few drinks and sandwiches down at the council centre. Dr. Ali Bakker actually came along. These guys were were raw, as I recall. They were raw. They really were unsure of themselves. They really didn't know how to. They were so polite. It yeah. was almost to me. Um, I found it, it. It was quite off-putting in that they they they'd obviously. I'd been brought up in a world that they were now in, which was quite alien to them. But it didn't take them long to realise that they were in the company of friends at Ennis. And that day, it went off like a dream. The fact that after you'd batted, um, and again, I'm not too sure if uh, we batted or bowled first, uh, you were allowed to go around in the crowd and hear individuals were in contact with white people that saw them as people, as human beings, asking for their autographs, 
and this was this was a common thread of the tour the euphoria on the coach the day we left either the hostel or the commune where we were and the bus turns and here is a garbage collector that is white never seen in south africa before all right <laughs> uh cheering waving there were just so many talking points that made us ambassadors for for south africans uh, but also educated us of life outside of south africa okay guys um what struck me very much about that episode was that we were talking about these very huge big things political changes in in a, a country the other side of the world and yet there was a real connection between um you know the cricketers that had come over from um south africa and the the local club in Anasagaron. Um, I don't know how people think of that or believe that cricket can have that kind of impact and play a role in these these maybe bigger issues of the day. Well, I think what what struck me was, and it's, I think it's a really good clip to have played that because we're all aware, aren't we, sitting here chatting about crickets that you know cricket has got race absolutely wrong recently hasn't it it's just you know it's been shocking isn't it the stuff that we've been hearing about recently and I think we need in the context of that we need to remind ourselves that cricket can also get it absolutely right can't it and has done in the past and I think that was a really good example of you know what we really enjoy about cricket diversity what Jan said earlier about feeling belonging, reaching out to other people, making new connections. My, my, my first Glamorgan match I ever watched was I was age six, St Helens, 1965, Glamorgan v South Africa. Um, I remember Colin Bland gave a fielding demonstration, the tea interval. I, I was six, so I, I remember that. And of course, we didn't see them then, South Africa. That was it. That was, didn't see them much after that. We saw Barry Richards for Hampshire, Mike Proctor for Gloucestershire, etc. But we didn't see them in that great, what would have been a great South African side, but for very, very good reasons. And then, obviously, Soweto and Alessa Geru, uh, that, that, that fixture is an example of, of how getting it right. Yeah, my my view, uh, Steve, was that, you know, agree with Richard there, cricket, we all know, is a great game, a great social game, but as well, it can bring people together and it can break down barriers, which often, you know, politicians have failed to do, you know, and we're now probably one of the most diverse clubs in in Wales. We've got a 40% uh, BAME membership for our senior players, lots of them coming from the the Mandy catchment area. So again, it it can break down barriers in in that respect as well. So no story from, from that for us. Okay, great. Jan, do you want to add anything? No, I think, well, that's a lot of stuff there, but I think what it said to me is that it's not only that cricket can promote inclusivity and, like, you know, interaction between different communities, but almost that it, it should. It's like that, you know, cricket has a greater obligation beyond the game itself of just playing cricket. It is about community and unity of, you know, and just being nice to each other. So I think that's, you know, that's the message I took from the Soweto story. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Um, Well, let's move on to our next clip, um, which features Mike. We did an episode all about Rodney Parade, but here Mike's talking about a a specific game back in the 1939 season when Glamorgan hosted Gloucestershire. Well, again, I think that one goes down in folklore for Newport Cricket Club. I think it was affectionately called that match. Uh, The Rodney Parade ground was one of the biggest in the country at that time. Uh, It hosted many famous matches. Uh, lots of cricket history was created at the ground, but probably the the one that was most important and created most records was was the match between Glamorgan and Gloucestershire in 1939. Glamorgan had been bowled out for 196 in their first innings before Wally Hammond scored a remarkable 302 for Gloucestershire in a in a score of 505 for five, for five declared, uh, and that remained as the highest ever score at the ground and and at the time it was the highest score against Glamorgan I think they've others passed that now his innings included three sixes and 35 fours and was his fourth triple century of his career equaling the score against Glamorgan five years earlier at Bristol 
one of the sixes was claimed to have smashed a window at the top of the huge power station at the bottom end of the of the ground. Now, when we played, as I said, it was a, it was a massive ground. I can only ever recall in twenty odd years of playing there, one six hit at that bottom end, which hit the wall, and that was at the base of the wall. We're talking about windows now, which are another twenty meters higher. So it must have been a phenomenal hit. And the, and the groundsman, Fred Cox, the athletic club groundsman at that time, Fred Cox, he actually kept a, a pane of the, the glass pane that had smashed the window and fallen down onto the ground. He actually kept that. It was on display in the pavilion. I can remember seeing it in the pavilion for a long, long time. But that was one of the items which was lost, unfortunately, when we, oh, what a shame. we moved from there. Mike, I know when we talked, um, really shone through the importance that you gave uh, and that Newport Cricket Club gives to the history of the club. Do you want to just say a little bit more about that or, or, or kind of, you know, how you've gone about doing it at, at, at Newport and how you continue to kind of make the history of the club important to everybody who's playing now? Yeah, well, it, it became evident five or six years ago that the current generation of players had no idea about uh, the history of the club and the traditions that had gone on before them. And because of that, we decided that we would try to set up a, a museum. When we left Rodney Parade, we didn't have anything at all. We didn't have a ground. We didn't have any facilities. Uh, so artefacts from the pavilion were taken by different people and stored over the years. And we just felt it would be really nice to get those back. We'd just taken on uh, a building next to the cricket ground, uh, which housed six squash courts. And we decided that we'd convert one of the squash courts into a museum. And it was great to be able to go back to those people and try to get all the artifacts back. And we've actually got them now in a, in a museum, which is a fantastic museum. Everyone who comes and looks around it says what a great place it is. Uh, and we've got all that memorabilia there, the history going back right the way back from 1834, pictures, documents, you name it, it's all there, recorded in decade boards around the room. Uh, and lots of pictures of, of Rodney Parade as well in its in its pomp. So uh, we've tried to maintain, you know, that as as part of the history of the club to pass on now to the young players. And we tried to get all the young players nowadays, you know, to be able to go down into the museum and see so that they, they can see what their, uh, you know, their forefathers, if you like, were and how they set the club up and how important the club is. Richard, I know in your book, you, trying to make history, the history of cricket accessible to perhaps lots of people who wouldn't normally see themselves as cricket founders, very important to you? Uh, very much so, yes. So I love love all of that, you know. I mean, as you could tell from the story about the memorabilia that I found, you know, I love all that kind of artefact stuff. I, th I think the thing that I got out of Mike's interesting story about 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 that that match was was Wally Hammond, really, because I, I did spend quite a lot of time talking about him in my book. And the sort of very, you know, but for Bradman, this we're talking about someone who possibly would have been the greatest ever, weren't we? But I think, as I mentioned in the book, if it wasn't, you know, every time he came up, up against Bradman, he was a sort of a day late and a dollar short, wasn't he? Never quite managed to surpass the Don. But, but, but uh, you know, the people who saw both play, Len Hutton was one of them who said he would prefer an hour of Wally Hammond batting to 10 hours of Bradman. So this ultimate stylist, this gorgeous kind of, you know, particularly his cover drive by all accounts. I mean, probably the ultimate stylist in the game, maybe. Um, so not only did he score, you know, absolutely bucket loads of runs, he did it with the ultimate style. Yeah, I'd be interested um Mike mentioned about the, the the big six there. What kind of bat he was using? Because I'm sure it wouldn't compare with today's uh, Zenith models, etc. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be a bit of a, a toothpick, I imagine. But mm. to get together that distance would have been a, would have been, as you say, pure timing, really. Because I doubt if Wally Hammers was on the weights either. I wouldn't have thought so. Um, but uh, but on the history, my, my kind of my kind of one word of advice or um, to any club is. is always have a team photo every season because mm. if you miss a team, if you miss a year, you won't get that year back. So uh, my club Bromwith, we were, we were faithfully doing it every year and then we kind of lapsed for a couple of years and the team photo, the same faces appear quite often, but 
there's always a changing of the guard and it's good that the young guns of today see who preceded them at, at whatever club he played for. A simple way of, of really pursuing the history chain. It's incredible, actually, how many um, uh, cricketing photos, team photos, pop up at the museum and very often kind of making links between uh, different photographs is really interesting. There was one that, Mike, you I remember you mentioned there were two photographs and you managed uh, to match them together and realise that they were taken on the same day. Yeah, it was a 1914 photograph, the Newport first team. Uh, we we just couldn't, We obviously there were no names on it. We couldn't identify the year it was going to be, it, the gate the team was from. Uh, we could recognise one or two players and professionals on there, but there was like a seven or eight year span while they were together playing. So it was difficult to put a, a date on it. And then we put an appeal out just for general photographs. It was right at the time when we were starting to do the museum, just asking for photographs uh, for any Newport teams. And I had a, an email from a lady in Ireland saying that her father lived outside, literally outside the ground, had a number of photographs. And would we like them? So she sent them through. And there was one particular one there was Newport veterans. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, that's a shame I wanted the first team photographs, really. You know, they they were sort of more appealing to me. But when I looked at the photograph, I recognised that there were a couple of the characters on the veterans photograph that were always on, also on this photograph that we hadn't been able to identify the year of. When we looked closer, the chairs and everything for the photograph were positioned in exactly the same way as they were for the other photograph. It was behind the pavilion, which was unusual. I suddenly realised that this must have been taken on the same day. And then when we checked back in the records in 1914, there was a match played between the Newport First Team and the Newport Veterans Team. It would have been just before World War uh, One started. It was in, in July, I think, of, uh, of, that, uh, of that year. And uh, by quickly looking at the teams that were listed for that match, we could all of a sudden see that some of the players... Uh, were in both teams. And that the reason for that was people like uh, Silverlock played for both Newport and the veterans. He played for both teams. He batted for both teams. And that was why he was on both photographs. So we very quickly worked out that these photographs, the two photographs that we got, the original and the one sent over from Lady from Ireland, were both from the same match. And we were able to put a date to it then, 1914, which would have been one of the last photographs before they went off to war. Some of the players never came back. Sorry, Jan, I jumped in there. I, I guess as a student of history, the history of, of, of cricket and the history of clubs is something that can uh, you spend a little bit of time thinking about as well? Well, I guess what I think about when, you know, people like our guests today talk about it is that, you know, I'm, so you, like you say, I'm 22, playing cricket still. I don't really think on a daily basis about like memorializing the memories of the cricket I play, but I'm sure in 30, 40 years, me and my teammates will look back and think, you know, they'll, we'll look at the current first team and we'll think, you know, they don't know anything about what it was like when I was playing. And, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that at the time, but uh, yeah, in, at some point, I think I'll want that as well. Okay, super. Right. Our next clip is Richard talking about the ashes. And from these sort of hugely passionate contests emerge these great heroes, don't they? For me, there's there's no contest like it. Perhaps Wales versus England at rugby gets a bit close, but I think over a kind of an extended period, you know, and because obviously test cricket is played over five days, you live and die several times during a match, don't you? You know, have all that, that fantastic ebb and flow. So for me, it, it is the it's the contest. And I was thinking about how dominant this was in the book. And, and it sort of confirmed to me when I was going through the index, actually. And I think the number of times that England against Australia is mentioned is a lot in the Ashes. There are other countries involved in there as well. Lots about the West Indies, uh, lots about India and so on. But that's that's the sort of spine of the book, really. The fact that this fantastic contest has kind of shaped, you know, cricket, really, hasn't it? Richard, do you want to add a, a little bit more to that? Well, I mean, just, I mean, we're right in the middle of an Ashes game right now, aren't we, as we're recording this. Um, it's uh, 144 years of intense rivalry that's still going strong. And I, 
I think I said that it's ebb and flowing. I mean, this test series so far, there's not a lot of ebbing, but there's a lot of flowing, and it's not in England's direction at the moment, is it? So um, let, let's hope that we're chatting about it now. There'll be a sort of a change in fortunes fairly fairly soon. Jan, do you, um, I mean, obviously you're following the, the, the matches, but do you kind of have uh, any Ashes particular memories? Well, I got drawn to cricket by 2005. That was that was my first like experience of cricket. And to be fair, it's quite difficult for anything to live up to that. And I don't think it was until that Headingly thing that anything even got close. You know, it's just and it it's a real like visceral battle in it. Like you you for six weeks you just can't stand the sight of an Australian. It's amazing. And yeah, I don't. I think there's not much that gets like that much passion in sport. I don't think, Chris. Uh, I was I was won by Dennis Lilly in '72 off a long run-up moustache, um, everything going on. Uh, but England had John Snow, and talking about Glamorgan being perhaps not getting the credit they deserved um, a bit earlier on. And John Snow stands up um, in England fast bowling pantheons really of, of greats, and he doesn't get mentioned that often. Um, but he was an awkward customer, um, and you know. He was well up for giving it back to the Aussies, and he did in Australia as well in '71, the year before. Um, yeah, it's, been, it's a great series. I, I, want, I, I feel that there's so many one-day series now, extra ones, and 2020 matches. They, they're playing each other a lot. Obviously, I'm not saying diminishing the Ashes itself because the Ashes tend to be the same scheduling. Um, but uh, I remember, you know, growing up uh, when the Ash, when the Aussies arrived on the, on these shores, it was. The Aussies are here. The actual battle, obviously, is is intact and always will be. Mike? Yeah, it's an enthralling uh, encounter, isn't it, England and Australia? The final match we had at Rodney Parade, we played Cardiff. And the reason being for that was that in 1901, when the ground and pavilion was opened, Newport played Cardiff. So we decided that we'd play as a, a last match, ceremonial match, whatever you want to call it. Newport would play Cardiff, which we did. It was a Victorian costume match. We, the captains dressed up in Victorian costume to toss the coin. Uh, the match was played. And at the end of the game, there was a ceremonial burning of the stumps and an ashes cask was made. And every year that Newport play Cardiff, we play for the Ashes, and in the museum we've got uh, uh, you know lots of pictures and photographs of, of the Ashes and, and the actual cup we play for every year. Okay, the next clip is uh, from our episode, uh, which Jan brought to us, uh, an interview with Mike Llewellyn. This was on April the 29th. There are two facts that you both that you need to know before I play this clip. The first one is that. Uh, Mike mentions a chap by the name of Albert Wright. And Albert was another county cricketer who, according to Mike, was uh, ever the one for a tall story. Um, if you'd got two run-outs in a match, he'd got four. Uh, if you'd scored uh, 24 runs off an over, he'd scored 32 runs off the over. So that's the first thing you should know. And the second thing is that uh, Mike had just told uh, Jan a story uh, about uh, a chap called Billy Slade, uh, and uh, they'd both been on a tour, uh, and Mike had uh, pushed Billy into the swimming pool, uh, and Billy nearly drowned because he couldn't swim. So bear those two things in mind as you listen to Mike talk about his encounter with Albert. So I'm sitting down now in the Union Cafe, and who should walk in but Albert Wright. So I then explained to him the story about Malta. And he said, Mike, he said, that's nothing. I said, nothing? What do you mean I nearly killed the bloke? No, he said, that's nothing. Billy and myself are very, very similar. I can't swim either. He said, well, we we're in this outdoor international swimming pool place. He said there was diving boards one end. So it was so deep one end and very, very long. But I said, well, what happened then, Albert? But he said, I was by the diving board end, he said minding my own business then all of a sudden somebody pushed me in from the back and i went straight into the swimming pool the deep end i said good god no albert i said well, what happened what happened because you you can't swim 
And he said, I know that. He said, I know that. He said, the one thing I didn't do, he said, I didn't panic. I said, well, what did you do? Well, I sank to the bottom, he said, and I walked all the way to the shallow end. (laughs) (laughs) My cup of tea nearly went everywhere. (laughs) A dead pan face. (laughs) I told him, you got a black cat, Albert's got a black one, boy, I tell him. Good God. Okay, Jan, um, I, I don't know if you'd like to describe what it was like interviewing Mike before everybody kind of has a chip in. Yeah, it was definitely the easiest interview I've ever done. I think I asked about three questions in an hour and ten minutes. It was, it was fantastic. He um, he just loved it. And I and sometimes you do an interview and it's like, you know, you've got to like encourage people to do stuff. I think I asked him how did you get into cricket? And he went from his uh, upbringing by his grandparents to uh, bowling at Lord's. So he covered about 20 something years of his life in about half an hour by the time the next question came. So yeah, no, it was great. He's a great bloke, Mike. Um, I've had the honor of having a pint with him on Christmas day um, for about three or four years. Uh, His brother-in-law lives not far from me and they go there for Christmas. And um, one year, about six years, seven years ago, went in for a pint um, midday, Christmas day, and, and Mike was there, and he explained why he was there with his, with his wife Yvonne, and um, the following Christmas day, the same thing happened again, and happened three years running, so off the agenda of the last couple of years, but it's been great to have a pint with him on Christmas day. I remember him playing a, for Glamorgan, a, a John Player match, John Player League match, and um, I don't know if you remember the old Banquets and Helens, which... Uh, it was sadly pulled down a long time ago. Um, David Lloyd Bumble was bowling uh, for Lancashire, did a, did a stint from the pavilion end, and Mike took a fancy to him and landed a, quite a few um, on the old bank. John played a league 40 over match, and David Lloyd is probably the kind of fifth bowler they used. Um, at, at the end of his stint, I remember the announcer said, and David Lloyd's figures. Eight overs, no maidens, naught for, sorry, David, 72. <laughs> I, I, I was there, the, you know, that, that game in 1977 at Lords when Mike Llewellyn became known on a sort of national stage, didn't he? And I, I remember the fact that that ball, that six he hit, I mean, he was the only Glamorgan batsman that fired that day, wasn't he, really? I mean, it was a pretty disappointing batting display um really but uh that six he hit that almost cleared the pavilion of course it's only ever been done once remember uh, it went quite close to the tv commentary box didn't it and brian johnson he just waved a, a white handkerchief right. out of the window didn't he that's right yeah when, when the ball almost almost hit the window but uh that that was that was a great day i mean that was that was an atmosphere in a, in a cricket ground akin to what it was like in cardiff arms park for a rugby international I mean that that was um, that was a great day out, and even the fact that we were soundly beaten on the day it was um, it didn't it didn't detract too much from what was a a brilliant day in the sunshine, you know, for Glamorgan, who, let's be fair, took a long time to sort of take to one day cricket, didn't they? That was great because I remember Mike really was on the uh, balcony, and uh, he was interviewed by Peter West, and he said, um, Peter West said, what about all these fans down below? He said, aren't they marvelous? But, but they were all Glamorgan fans. They weren't Middlesex fans, but really was taking credit for, for Glamorgan's fans. But, um, you know, it was obviously um, Glamorgan were, were, in, were in town, basically. Um, but great day, great day. Mike, any, uh, any yeah. Mike Llewellyn stories? Well, as, as young players, we were fortunate to be at Lords as well to watch that. And I'm pretty certain Jan's interview would have, if it was an hour and five minutes, it was probably 50 minutes at least on that shot. Over <laughs> I've been to the pavilion from Mike. He was a great character. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time with him. He was a great player. And I think probably a story with Albert as well. And the lines just, you know, the type of characters that are involved in cricket, I'm sure, if you went around... Uh, most cricket clubs, they'd all come up with a character in their own club who's, you know, a little bit unique and strange and quirky, but really loved and very important to their own, own club. Again, it's, it's that type of game, isn't it? You know? 
I think we're going to get to one with uh, with with Chris in a minute and Bron with the uh, cricket club, but uh, let's not jump ahead. Um, okay, the next clip comes from a uh, episode all about the Conway Celts ladies cricket team, and here Donna Jones and Linos Hill are talking about the importance of seeing the elite women play and all of the new junior ECB inspired efforts to get young youngsters involved in the games. So here we go. I think it's vital, isn't it? We all need role models. We all need something that's aspirational, but gives us the feeling that we could do that, whatever that sport is. Um, So having that backing, having that marketing and showing that actually as a female, you can play in this sport at whatever level you want to play, whether it's social, whether it's in a league or whether it's as an elite athlete, treating everybody equally, I think is vitally important. Yeah, so at Conway, we go from the age of five up to senior. So we've got five to eight All-Stars and we've got about 30, 40 All-Stars coming week in, week out. Um, And then we also offer the Dynamos programme along with the Girls Only Dynamos programme as well. Um, And the numbers are sort of similar in that too. Um, We've got a really good junior section at Conway. And it's important, we feel that, um, to have a thriving junior section to help feed into the adult teams in their later life. Um, but with all some dynamos for us, it's just about instilling the love of the game and getting them involved in any way we can, really. OK, the emergence of women's cricket has perhaps been one of the most uh, important things uh, that, that's happened in cricket over the last few years. Um, I don't know, Mike, do you want to start with your experience at Newport and, you know, any particular yeah. stories you've got about women becoming more involved? Well, in 2009, it was the club's 175th anniversary and we, we sat down a, a year or so before and started to plan what we were going to do to celebrate that season. I came up with the idea that we ought to set up a women and girls section. The room went very quiet when I mentioned it and looked around for volunteers. And I said, well, I was head coach at that time. And I said, well, I'll run it. I'll, I'll start it off and I'll run it. And we, we spent an awful lot of time going out into schools, sending flyers out, putting adverts in papers, trying to get this girls section up and running. And we had, I think at the first training session, we had about eight or 10 coaches and we turned up and there were seven or eight girls there. We literally had, we literally had one girl each and it was really disappointing. But we went away and we, we said, right, well, you know, the girls who were there enjoyed it. They had a good session. They went away. They came back the following week and they brought another, a friend and we told them, you know, if you've got anyone else interested, bring them along. And as it went on, it snowballed. And looking back, it was probably one of the best decisions that we ever made as a, as a club to, to set up a women and girls uh, section. Uh, our girls under 13 and under 15 teams have both been UK champions. The women's team has been UK champions. And of that, eight girls that turned up for the first training session, six of them were there Six, six years later, when the under-15 team won the UK Championship, six of that eight were still involved with the club, which I think goes to show again how much commitment that the girls will give to the game. Once they get involved in something and enjoy it, they stick with it. And it, was, I, it, it just sticks out like a mile. They're just so good to work with. They listen to every word. They try to please. And it, it's great. It's a, a really big... Uh, plus for our, our cricket club to have a, such a good women and girls cricket section now. Richard, I know your dad's favourite cricketer, not, not favourite woman's cricketer, but favourite cricketer was Sarah Taylor. He was a massive Sarah Taylor fan, yeah, absolutely. And, and you talk quite uh, significantly in your book and you <coughs> went out of your way to make sure you talked about women's cricket. Yeah, I did. I, I put a whole chapter in about women's cricket, which was a bit sort of, and in some ways it was slightly out of keeping with the rest of the book because I was quite prescriptive in the things I say in that chapter about women's cricket. And I made the point that when I was doing the research for the book, you know, the amounts written about men's cricket, women's cricket, you know, you've never seen a greater equality in your life. And of course, it's women's cricket is is a story of inequality all the way through, isn't it? Uh, But one of the points I make in that chapter is that because women's cricket has been so poorly funded and so poorly supported at kind of elite level, Lots of stories of, you know, 
women picked to play cricket for England and having to arrange jumble sales that sell potatoes and laybys to raise the money to buy the kit and buy the airfare so they could go and represent England at cricket. Um, uh, and the point that I make about that is because they've had never had this handed on a plate to them in the way that men's cricket have. They play cricket for the right reasons. They have the best values. It's pure. It's honest. It's unsullied by commercial kind of gain and all of that. And so, you know, it's, in my money, it's absolutely to be admired as as great, great sport, great cricket, great commitment, sort of echoing Mike's comments there about, you know, how keen the girls are to get involved. And once they find it, you know, they stay with it and all of that. So I, I personally love watching. I think, you know, my dad loved watching women's cricket. I, I see it as equally as entertaining as the men's. And I think, you know, I, I will always watch women's cricket because I think, I think it's great. You know, I think it's absolutely great. And I think, although I was a big critic of the hundred and I still am slightly suspicious of it, I have to say, I think that did the world, a world of good for, women's cricket because it promoted some of, of the of the players into absolute, you know, became household names, didn't they, across the summer, which I think was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I guess just adding to that, that it's, um, you know, without women playing cricket, by all accounts, the game in England, Wales will die. So I think, you know, it's one of the more um, important aspects of, you know, cricketing policy going forward is to get more and more women involved in the game. Okay, Chris? Yeah, I think probably um, the, the game probably owes, owes women a, a debt because it's bucking a trend, really, because we, we all know of clubs, perhaps we played against, who are no longer um, operating, no longer with us. They've advanced. They've, they've come into the game. Um, clubs have been formed. Teams have formed. Um, so they're bucking the trend of declining numbers of, of men playing the game, really. So the game survives and, and moves on. So... And they're playing their part in, in doing that. Final clip um, is from the episodes that featured Chris's uh, club, Club Cricket Bronwith. Uh, and this is a long-standing member of the club, Arwen Thomas, uh, talking about why he likes the game. A cricket, really. It's, um, I think it's a game where it's slow enough for a bit of the repartee to happen between players, you know, and well, you could, there are various stories, one could go on and on about them, which can't happen in rugby or soccer, the games are too quick, too fast. Uh, but I always remember bowling up in Aberystwyth against Robin Varley, and I, he's a very good bat, he played for Wales, and I bowled him a bad ball, and he hit me for six, not only over the boundary, but it hit the top of the tennis court. Well, the next ball, I bowled him. Before that, when it hit the top of the tennis court, I said, Merry Christmas, you know. Next ball, I bowled him. He tried to do it again, I think. And as he walked past me, taking the gloves off, he said, I'm a happy new <laughs> Okay, Chris, uh, Arwen, a, a tour de force at uh, Bronwith? Undoubtedly, yeah. As you know, we got the a wicket of the first ball bowled on our ground in 79, which he still mentions. <laughs> but yeah, he, he's, he's in everything in the club and he's a cricket person, basically, in the bar afterwards. You know, I learned a lot just talking to Arwen. We were on the same wavelength, really. And yeah, it was all about communication on the field, but off the field as well. He was one of the characters I've played with over the, over the years. Well, I think as well, the other, the other element of, of the story that Chris tells and the one that we heard in the clip was that it's also nice to have rivalries with other players and other teams, isn't it? You know, those sort of friendly rivalries. I think they always used to say about Wilfred Rhodes, a great Yorkshire and England bowler, that there was always a problem if he got you out it was big trouble because that meant he knew how to get you out every time you played against him. And you get somebody out in club cricket and you know you're going to play him next year and you look forward to it and you try and set them the little trap and you see if they can remember you bowling at them and they remember, you know, what they did and how they how they got out to you. 
So all of that is great. And I think this is something that perhaps for the reason that we heard in the clip, you have time to develop these relationships in cricket. You have time to sit, you know, to, to sit and watch, to stand in the covers. If you're not a, not a very able fielder like me, not very mobile, you'd be standing around at long stop or something. And you've got plenty of time to think and watch and plot and plan and all of that, which perhaps you don't get to do that in other sports. And neither do you get the opportunity to build these long-standing relationships with other people, which, let's be fair, is the huge joy of playing any sort of sport, isn't it, I think? Mike? Well, it just does worry me that, uh, you know, we're of a generation whereby people stuck with the game and stuck with their own club. It does just worry me that the young players in in today's uh, game hopping from one club to another for various reasons. It does worry me whether they will actually stay in the game and put something back into into the game. Uh, some of them will have had, you know, lots of clubs by the time they, they finish. You know, I can't see those guys putting back into clubs what, you know, probably the people on this call have done. Uh, our entire ground staff is made up of play, players who were players at Rodney Parade. And they've stayed loyal to the club. The club was obviously in, in in very close to extinction. And they've stayed close to the club and they're still involved in the club, you know, as ground staff. So I think you get loyalty from those people as well. I'm not so sure that word is, is, is so much evident in lots of cases nowadays. You think that's one of the biggest threats to the, to, to the future of the club game, uh, Mike? That sort yeah, of in, that, inability yeah. to retain people? Yeah, definitely. You know, you the secretary, the treasurer, the chairman, the groundsman, those, those roles, it's, it's difficult to see who's going to take those on, you know, after the current uh, generation finish. Hopefully someone will come through. Jan, all eyes on you now. <laughs> I feel under pressure here. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was just, I was thinking about the whole thing is that the bit, the thing about cricket is it's you know it's a story, isn't it? Because people don't remember the um, people don't remember the, the the actual stuff that happened in the game all the time. They remember the stories around it. That's what sticks with you forever. It's not yeah, it's not the it's not the actual cricket bit that's important. It's everything else. And I think well, like what Mike said, I think I you know I can't say what will happen when I finish playing cricket, but you know the sense of community is by far the most important bit to me anyway, and I think it is to most people. Okay, lovely. Before we finish, Gent, we've had your highlights of 2021 and maybe just something you're looking forward to in 2022. Jan, should we start with you? We've spent a lot of time on this podcast, you know, including today, talking about how cricket can be inclusive and uh, integrate diverse communities and that sort of thing. But I think actually something we need to come to terms with is when it doesn't. And I think that's something that I would like to uh, focus on for the podcast this year is, you know, the problems that we we have faced and still do face and, you know, how they can be resolved. Mike? Well, I was going to say for England to find an opening batsman, but I think that might take longer than uh, in 12 months, to be honest. You're right. Um, So I'm going to stick to a boring one, a successful season for Newport Cricket Club, all all of the teams. And I think more importantly, a COVID-free season. Hopefully, we can we can get cricket back on the, on the road without any major problems. Chris, well, I'd love to see the Morgan play for Helens again. Um, they haven't played for two years, and the prospects aren't looking massively bright at the moment. There's only one ground in the West really where they've always played, and that's in Helens. So I'm not saying for 2022, but um, it'd be great if uh, they took the field there again. Okay. Richard? I, I, I definitely echo that because St. Helens is a few hundred yards from my office in, in, in the university. And um, it would be lovely just to, just to get, get some, you know, first-class cricket back there. I think the other thing, I mean, I would echo everything that Jan said as well, you know, absolutely spot on. You know, we, we've got big battles to face with diversity and, Quality and inclusivity, and people feeling welcome, and we've got to we've got to fix that. I was going to say getting the ashes back, but I suspect that that might already be a tall order. The other thing, really, is fixture chaos. All of these different competing forms of cricket, 
Um, the fact that certainly in the year that we've just had, county cricket just seemed to be edged out of the picture. That's where skills are developed. That's where players understand their game. They understand to develop their game. And that obviously is where, you know, Ashes series are won and lost, aren't they? In the development work in county cricket. So I would just like to see all of these formats sorted out and proper space made for county cricket. Yeah. Okay. Super. Um, thank you, one and all, for uh, coming on to the call tonight. Uh, really appreciate it. Can I take this opportunity to wish you and your families uh, and your clubs um, a very Merry Christmas uh, and a safe and happy New Year? Thanks, gents. Okay, thanks, thanks you. All the best, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Many thanks to Mike, Richard and Chris for giving us their time and to Jan for his contributions to the podcast in 2021. One of the things we're very proud of as a pod is the work of our colleague Alan Rees-Chivers and the Welsh language podcast he has delivered for us. I caught up with Alan and we chose his favourite clip of the work he has done with us. Right, uh, Alan, uh, nice to speak to you again. Tell us a little bit about uh, the episode that we're going to listen uh, to a clip from. Well, basically, I knew I wanted to do something on literature and cricket. It's something that I touched on in my own MPhil research, looking at uh, the coverage that cricket gets in literature and in books generally in the Welsh language. So I I knew I wanted to do that. So I basically contacted a, a few people I I knew would be interested. We had two journalists. One was uh, Laurie Roberts, daughter of Alan Wynne Bevan, who featured in our Brinaman episode and talking about cricket grounds in Wales. And also Shona David, who was a football reporter. And she's the granddaughter of David Rowlands, a poet who wrote quite extensively about cricket in the Welsh language. So I wanted to talk to her about her grandfather and his work as well. To give it a little bit more context, then we had Dylan Foster Evans, who was the head of Welsh at Cardiff Uni. And also we had T. James Jones, known in Welsh circles as Jim Parknest, former Archdruid of the Nationalist Edward. And he spoke a little bit about David Rowlands as well and his memories of him. They were big friends. There was a, a well-known trip to Canterbury that they went on together. So he, he spoke a little bit about that but also about the, the clip that we're going to hear as well. Jim Padknest is from Newcastle Emlyn area, and uh, he spoke a little bit about a, a local character that we'll hear about in the clip, uh, who was the local postman. A bit of an eccentric character, apparently, and uh, the, the clip we hear is talking about his involvement as a club official. An, an invoice was sent to Newcastle Emlyn Cricket Club for some kit, and uh, the, the clip talks about his uh, his efforts to avoid paying the invoice, shall we say. Okay, and I, I'm right in saying that you don't need to understand Welsh to understand the joke that's made, is that right? Absolutely, with that little bit of setup, it gives a, a little bit more context to it, and uh, everyone will certainly understand the uh, the two punchlines in this story. And the episode that that came from, uh, Alan, was entitled? Sena Sain, which means literature of the crease. Nawr, ond uh, uh, mae Tom yn trialu lwcto ac yn 
anwybyddir unwaith unwaith eto a dyma rybydd yn dod wedyn yn y diwedd yn dweud ond a rybydd cas wedi dod. Borhau talu'r bil awr comparu fel postman yn gwybod sy'n dweud telegram. A fe halodd y telegram nôl at y clwb a gweud sori secretary dead. A fe ar eit o'n hynny'w gyda'r troad wedyn mae'n telegram arall yn dod nôl o'r cwmni wrth gwrs ac yn oedd gweud bod nhw'n mynd i fod mynd o flaen y llys. A mae Twm yn arahau'r telegram y gweud, sori, secretary, still dead. Ond yna stori gricidol o ardal Castellewiw hwnna. You don't escape the two questions that all of our guests have been asked, uh, Alan, I'm afraid. So um, <laughs> do you want to pick on one personal cricketing highlight of 2021 for you? I think it has to be the Royal London victory, of course. The first, trof- first Glamorgan trophy since 2004. It was just, obviously, circumstances meant that I couldn't actually be there this time, but uh, watching it on telly at home, it, it was just brilliant. It, it's always great to see a Glamorgan win, obviously, and uh, it was richly deserved this year, being a, a bit of a strange one, really, in terms of cricket, with a, a number of the players, I think, to the 100. But obviously, it, it gave the younger generation a, a chance to kind of shine and to... To break through and it's great really knowing that Glamorgan have got another generation of really good cricketers coming through. Absolutely yeah and um, obviously one of the things we'll all be looking forward to is seeing how they perform uh, next season. Um, do you have any uh, particular sort of personal hopes, uh, cricketing hopes for 2022? Obviously I think the main one has to be getting back to watching cricket. It's been a, a funny couple of years really for us cricket lovers, isn't it? And uh, it would just be great really to be back in the stadium watching Glamorgan where we should be all summer on on the field. And obviously things haven't been brilliant in terms of the red ball game for a number of years now for Glamorgan. So it'd be really good to, to kind of get back to some kind of level of good cricket on, on that front and just keep going in terms of the one day game then and develop on the success this year and uh, let's see where we can end up in the end. Okay, that's lovely. Thanks, Alan. To finish, we thought it would be lovely to hear again the thoughts of Ken Lewis, Glamorgan's oldest living player who we interviewed in the summer. His words will, we are sure, strike a chord with all those cricket clubs and organisations who have lost someone this year. So to play us out, here are Ken's final words on his interview, accompanied by the singing of the Soweto Gospel Choir, who so kindly allowed us to use their music during our podcast all about the touring Soweto cricket side. Blowthin nuithar i bob sin carir gem cricket and gumri. See you all again in 2022 when we'll be bringing you some more stories about the great game of cricket from the great country of Wales. Hoilvaur, bye for now. Uh, would I do it all again? I don't know, but uh, I'd be silly enough to do it. I think. No, I, I think like Don and Bernard and Peter Walker, Peter was a good friend. They got on well and good luck to them. They were pleased for them. Unfortunately, sadly, they're no longer with us. Uh, And to be the last survivor of the 1950s, it's really sad. I can still see them all as if it was the first day of 1950. I can still see every one of them as they were.
Oes gyda chi stori yw'r hanni gyda ni? Mae'n croeseich i gysylltu. E-bosiwch mwcpod1921 at gmail.com Neu ewch i'n tudalen Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Neu i'n tudalen Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.